Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is titled, Once Upon a Time. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. You may not remember his name, but few have forgotten his talent. Some consider him the greatest running back you haven't heard of. If you were to bring up the name Lawrence Phillips to a college football fan, you would witness someone sighing and shaking their head. Phillips first rose to prominence as a sophomore running back at the University of Nebraska in 1994. In an era when Nebraska football was frequently in the national spotlight and often a championship contender, Phillips' star rose quickly when he tied a school record as a sophomore, gaining 100 yards in 11 straight games. He finished the 1994 season with over 1,800 yards rushing and entered his junior year as a Heisman Trophy frontrunner. However, a domestic violence Arrest during the 95 season quickly diminished any Heisman hopes and led to a six-game suspension. After his reinstatement, Phillips still managed to rush for over 700 yards and 11 touchdowns, helping the Cornhuskers win another national title. He then elected to forego his senior season and put his name in the NFL draft. After the St. Louis Rams drafted him in the first round of the 96 NFL draft, the Rams were so confident in Phillips' abilities, they traded away future Hall of Fame running back Jerome Bettis to the Pittsburgh Steelers. Sadly, repeated run-ins with the law sidelined Phillips' professional career and handed the football phenom a 10-year prison sentence. He started that sentence in 2008 at the Kern Valley State Prison in Delano. While serving his initial sentence, Phillips' jail term was increased to 31 years when he was convicted of an assault for two previous incidents, And then, just a few years later, in 2015, Phillips was accused of murdering his cellmate, after which he committed suicide a few months later in early 2016. Lawrence Phillips is just one of many examples of wasted talent and unreached potential. None of us like to see someone blessed with so much to then tragically squander it away what they've been blessed with. It causes us to wonder, if only briefly, what could have been with that person. And certainly, I could go on and rattle off names that you would know, and you could rattle off some names as well of celebrities and leaders and athletes who had great potential and never reached it and seemed to waste their lives. Well, not only do we hate to see it happen, the Lord hates to see it happen as well. He hates to see people blessed with so much tragically squander what they've been blessed with. We're continuing our journey through the parables of Jesus in this series called Once Upon a Time. If you haven't done so already, I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 13 and pull out the sermon notes in your worship folder. If you forgot your Bible, just uh, raise your hand, and one of our ushers will bring one to you. Uh, I apologize for the uh, sermon note handouts. We've had issues with it the last few weeks because uh, we think there's been some turnover at the print shop we use, and we're trying to get them back in line to do what we need them to do with our weekly job. If you want a one-sheet... PDF handout, I always post one on our website on Tuesdays, so you could go there, download it, transfer your notes if you want, or if you want to 
a different version. Also, if my voice is sounding more and more like the voice of God to you, it is because I am under the weather and trying desperately to get healthy. Well, we've been learning throughout this series that uh, a parable is an earthly story packed with a heavenly truth. In the scripture text we're going to be looking at today, Jesus tells a story that vividly portrays how he feels about people who have been abundantly blessed, but tragically squander what they've been blessed with. Our big idea for today is this, spiritual fruit is proof of spiritual life. Spiritual fruit is proof of spiritual life. The parable of the barren fig tree is another tough text that only a few commentators have chosen to tackle with any detail. Of the four books that I'm using as additional resources for this series, all of which are from well-known authors, only one of those four books addresses this parable. And when I did a search on YouTube to see if any reputable preachers covered this story... I was shocked I could not find one name I recognized. And I know a lot of preachers' names. It's what I do for a living. I follow a lot of preachers, subscribe to their podcasts, read their books, and not one name could I recognize of any well-known, reputable preacher that tackled this. Now, perhaps they have, but for some reason it's not on YouTube. A lot of their other messages are. Now, although the material on this parable wasn't as scarce as the amount on the parable of the ready servants, I did expect to find more than what I was able to find. Uh, Regardless, we shouldn't avoid tough texts because they are difficult to hear or understand or maybe others have avoided them. Um, it's, It's the next one on a list of parables that I have in my files and I'm just working my way down the list and, and going through them and this is the next one, and just, I don't feel well, and I can't sleep at night if I skip one, going, ah, I don't, I don't want to do that one. Instead, the Lord just has stirred in me a desire to tackle it, and I want to figure it out. I want to I understand it. Why is it there? And so, and so I think when we come across texts that could be uncomfortable or reveal a side of Jesus that we don't want to see or maybe are difficult to understand, We need to press into that passage, realizing that it's in the canon of Scripture for a reason. Sovereignly, God had the early church fathers put that passage in the Scriptures. Also, um, we, we need to realize that everything in the Scriptures tells us something about God's character. And so first we need to understand why Jesus told this parable. And the answer lies in the six verses preceding the story. So if you would look with me at Luke 13, verses 1 through 6. And the parable is in verses 6 through 9. Starting in verse 1, there were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all those who lived in Jerusalem? No, I I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, let's stop here. At first glance, there are two events mentioned in these first six verses that are confusing because the text doesn't really give us a lot of information about what they're talking about. Uh, But thankfully, uh, there are some commentators that have filled in the gaps. Uh, The crowd was actually asking Jesus whether two headlines from their local news were the results of God's wrath. 
The first event is believed to refer to a mass killing in which the Roman governor Pilate had some Galilean Jews slaughtered as they presented their offerings, their sacrifices at the Passover in the temple of Jerusalem. The second news headline was brought up by Jesus. It involved a construction accident in which a tower fell on innocent bystanders killing 18 people. And so the crowd was wondering, do accidents happen to people because they are being judged by God? It's a legitimate question. If this is true then, according to the crowd's theology, good people would not have to repent because bad things don't happen to them. However, Jesus debunks this myth by in essence saying, those people were no worse sinners than you, and you are no worse sinners than them. If you don't repent, you will eventually die and be condemned to hell just like them, because everybody dies. And so, so he's saying they needed to repent, the people already who had died, and they didn't. So Jesus knew where they were. And he's telling his audience... If you don't repent, you're going to die eventually too because everybody does and accidents happen and you'll go where they went. So in Jesus' eyes, what he's saying in these first six verses is that there are no good people on earth who die unjustly. He doesn't see it that way because we are all sinners who deserve God's death penalty. Now, in addition to uh, context, something else that's very important in Bible interpretation is to identify who the target audience is. And so I want to make this clear, and it's even on a slide behind me. Who is Jesus talking to when he tells this parable? Well, the parable of the barren fig tree is primarily for the people of Israel who had failed to believe in and follow Jesus as their long-awaited Messiah. So that's who he's first aiming at. It's secondarily for the modern church attender who claims to know Jesus, but shows no signs of repentance or fruit in their life. So there's an application for us as well. Jesus told this parable so that we would take his call to repentance seriously and live fruitful lives for him. Let's look at the parable in verses 6 through 9. So, as he's talking about the news headlines to this crowd, he then tells a story, as he often did, to make a point. It says in verse 6, and he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on some manure. And then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Here's the first point on your outline, the first truth that Jesus is trying to convey in this parable. And that is, number one, the Lord expects fruit because he is vested. The Lord expects fruit because he is vested. Fig trees were a very common fruit tree in the ancient Near East that were part of the mulberry family. They would typically grow to anywhere from 12 to 20 feet tall. And a newly planted tree would start to produce fruit when it was about three years old. Fig trees were used by Old Testament prophets as a sign of God's judgment, or a symbol of God's judgment, excuse me, They were also used by Jesus as the object of a miracle in Mark chapter 11. 
And they were the subject of another parable that Jesus told in Matthew 24 and Mark 13. So fig trees come up quite often in the scriptures. Now there are three characters in the parable, all of whom have symbolic significance. The man who owned the vineyard represents God the Father. The vine dresser or gardener is Jesus. And the tree is the nation of Israel and the modern church. Notice in the text it says in verse 6, he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Like a landowner inspecting his crops or an investor in a new business venture, the Lord was, he had a vested interest in what his followers were doing with their lives. As the old leadership cliche says, Jesus was inspecting what he expected. One reason for this is that if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, you were bought with a price. And the currency was the Savior's blood. And so according to 1 Corinthians 6, you no longer own yourself. Jesus owns you. It's part of the fantastic transaction that takes place in the gospel. Jesus says, I'll give you my perfect life, and in exchange, you give me your sinful life. I'll buy you off the slave market of sin, so you become a slave to me and follow me, and then I'll die in your place on the cross. So because of this investment that Jesus has made in his followers, it is the Lord's reasonable right and expectation to see any sinner he redeems bear fruit for him. He cares. Just like any of you that, say, invest in the stock market wouldn't continue to invest in something that's not producing dividends. You would move your resources to something else. Well, in the same way, Jesus sees anyone that claims to know him as an investment, and he wants to see them bear fruit. In fact, Jesus is so committed to helping us be fruitful, he has generously provided several spiritual blessings to assist us. Here's just a few. This list is not limited uh, to only these, but these are just some of the big ones that I could find as I surveyed the New Testament. So how does Jesus bless us spiritually so we can be fruitful? Letter A, he gives us access to himself through prayer. He gives access to himself through prayer. Hebrews 4.16 says that because we have a Savior who is aware of our weaknesses, we can confidently approach his throne of grace in our time of need and receive grace and mercy. The Lord, in essence, says, do you need help following me? No problem. Just give me a call and I'll help. Letter B, the next spiritual blessing that he gives is his divine power. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, Peter writes, His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. This means no burden is too heavy, no trial too big, or temptation too strong that his divine power cannot help us overcome so we can bear fruit. Just like a new smartphone pulled out of the box, uh, the Christian life comes with everything pre-installed that you need. All you have to do is plug it in to a power source. And that power source, of course, is the Lord. And so he, in essence, says, you don't have the power to live the life I've called you to live. I'll give you my power to do it. Letter C. Another spiritual blessing he gives is his enabling grace. One of the many myths about grace is that it is only unmerited favor given at the point of conversion. 
It's actually much more than that. The New Testament also teaches that God's grace is so amazing. It should motivate us to put effort into our spiritual growth, and it can enable us to grow. One example of this is when Paul was struggling with a physical ailment in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul called it a thorn in the flesh. He pleaded with the Lord three times to remove it from him. But the Lord's response to Paul was, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul himself got a no answer to one of his prayers, but got grace to push on and endure in what God had called him to do. Letter D, another spiritual blessing that God gives, is freedom from sin's power. In addition to prayer and divine power and enabling grace, the Lord also blesses his children with freedom from sin's power. Romans chapter 6 says that unbelievers have no spiritual power to stop sinning. They are slaves to sin, literally, in Romans 6, 6. However, the born-again believer is granted the power through Christ to say no to sin for the first time in their lives and to, in essence, become a slave to Christ, is what it says in Romans 6, 7. Jesus, in essence, says, I'm so committed to your success in the Christian life and helping you be fruitful for me I'm going to give you the power to resist sin so sin's no longer an excuse. So you can no longer say, the devil made me do it, or my wife made me do it, or my husband, or whatever. You can no longer say, oh, it's this habitual sin I struggle with. No, Jesus solved that problem. Born-again believers have the power to resist sin. So as you can see, the Lord has virtually removed every possible hindrance or excuse that would prevent us from being fruitful. Or as you've heard me say before, whatever God calls us to do, he enables us to do. He's he's that kind of loving, understanding, sympathetic God. He knows that we're made from dust. He knows that we're weak. And he knows that we need spiritual power from him to live a spiritual life that's fruitful. So the parable of the barren fig tree is a reminder that although the Lord has high expectations, his expectations are high. And I think that's clear in the scriptures. And they're high for those that he's invested in. However, his expectations are not unreasonable or unattainable. And that is really important to get. Spiritual fruit is proof of spiritual life. Let's look at the next couple verses. In verse 7, he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put some manure on it. Here's the second point on your outline, the second truth that Jesus is making or stating in this parable. The Lord extends mercy because he is patient. The Lord extends mercy because he is patient. Look for three years, says the Lord God as the vineyard owner. The disappointment that he's feeling is quite obvious in the text. He had expectations, and they were not met. He's saying, this tree should have been yielding fruit by now, but it wasn't. Now, please pay attention uh, to what I'm about to say, because I don't want you to miss this. The three-year period is spiritually significant because John the Baptist and Jesus had been preaching their message of repentance throughout Israel for three years. And he's saying through the parable, 
we've been preaching for three years and you people of Israel haven't produced any fruit. So you are like the fig tree. John the Baptist called on the Jews back in chapter 3 to produce fruit in keeping with repentance and to do so quickly because he says, John the Baptist literally says in, in, in Luke 3, 8, and 9, the axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. In other words, John the Baptist told them a couple chapters back, ten chapters back, actually, the Lord has his axe waiting at the trunk of the tree. Time is running out for you to repent, Israel. And he would say the same thing to those who have not repented and trusted Christ. You will not have forever. You are living on borrowed time. The axe is going to be lifted, and it's going to come down. Now, Jesus is obviously reiterating what John had already said in chapter 3. What is, but, but it leads to this question that I was wrestling with. What is fruit in keeping with repentance? What does that mean? Well, simply put, it means to have an inward change of heart that produces an outward change in behavior. And in this case, John the Baptist and Jesus wanted to see the Israelites have a change in heart from unbelief to belief in the Messiah that would cause them to change their behavior and follow him. And the same is true for the unbeliever today. Jesus wants to see a change of heart, repentance, that leads to a change in behavior showing that the heart was sincere. Now, this still seems vague and insufficient to me, and so here's some more specific outward changes that genuine believers manifest after expressing repentance and faith in Christ. This list of sub-points I'm going to give you can also serve as a good litmus test, shall I say, when trying to discern whether someone is actually saved. As you've heard me say before, don't listen to what they tell you. Look at their life. Look at their fruit. Here's some examples. Genuine fruits of repentance that the Lord is looking for start with letter A, yearning for intimacy with Christ. Jesus said in John 15, whoever abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. For apart from me, he can do nothing. The person who really understands the love of Christ demonstrated on the cross will naturally want to love him back by growing closer to him. Similar to two star-crossed lovers who cannot stand to be apart the sincere believer longs to be with the Lord and to spend time with him and to grow closer to their first love. So there's a yearning to be with the Lord, to spend time with him, to grow closer to him. Let her be. Another fruit of repentance is the craving for God's word. Jesus goes on to explain in John 15 that there is a direct correlation between loving him and loving his word. He says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. So just as your tummy craves grandma's uh, special cookies at Christmas time, uh, the soul of a real Christ follower will have an insatiable appetite for God's word. And if you don't have that appetite, the scriptures would say you need to do a spiritual inventory and ask yourself, am I born again? Because when somebody's born again, the Holy Spirit indwells them, and the Holy Spirit creates the desire to learn, know, and apply God's word. 
So thus the inverse is also true. If anyone professes to know Christ but has no desire to learn God's word, then it's possible they're not born again. And I'm not saying that. Jesus is saying that. Because he's describing, here's what people do who love me. Next, letter C. This leads to applying God's word. And when a person is a new creation in Christ, they not only yearn to be near the Lord, and and they long to hear from him through his word, they also long to please him. And, And that can only happen by first devouring his word and then applying it. Applying the word means to, very simply, to change your thoughts, your feelings, your desires, and your behavior to be so in line with the scriptures that you have what Paul calls the mind of Christ. You, you think, act, and feel, and desire the things that Jesus thinks, acts, feels, and desires. According to Matthew 13, this happens when the heart that hears the word has soil ready to receive it, and it bears fruit. Letter D. Those who have uh, created, born fruits of repentance, die to their old life. When someone's been born again, they realize how miserable they were before knowing Christ. They realize how their unrepentant sin had separated them from Christ and what it did to him on the cross. And so they don't want anything to do with that anymore. In John 12, Jesus says through an illustration that our old life must be like a grain of wheat that falls to the ground and dies so that that new life can come out of that grain of wheat and bear fruit. John 12, 24. So, so, in those who have borne fruits of repentance, there is a clear, unquestionable, noticeable, obvious change from their previous life before Christ to who they are now in Christ. And there's no looking back going, man, those were the good old days. Because they understand, I was condemned to hell. I was separated from Christ. I was lost. I was miserable in my sin. And so they don't want to do that or have anything to do with that life anymore. And finally, letter E, those who have repented and borne fruits of repentance, they pursue holiness. In Philippians 1, Paul says, when someone has a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, they will seek to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Because the Holy Spirit dwells within them, and the Holy Spirit hates sin and loves righteousness, the believer will desire what the Spirit desires. The true believer will want to put off sin and pursue holiness. By God's grace and with the help of His Spirit. So, spiritual fruit is proof of spiritual life. Now, when the Lord sees these fruits, he's pleased. But when he doesn't, he responds with the last half of verse 7. Notice what he says. Cut it down. Why should it use up ground? This gives us a glimpse of what Romans 11.22, Paul says in Romans 11.22, the kindness and the severity of God. Some translations render it the kindness or the harshness of God. He is tender towards those who take him seriously, but he is tough towards those who don't. He's both. Now, i got to be honest with you. I'm, I'm like you. I would rather just have the kind, tender God. I, I would rather have that. I don't, I don't really want the harsh, severe side of God. But we don't get to decide who he is and what parts of his character he expresses. It's who he is. We don't get to change him. So you might be wondering, but, but man, Pastor Kerry, why, 
why does God have to be that way? You know, why does he have to like be cutting people down and everything? Why, why, why is he got to be severe and harsh? Well, it's our fault, not his. You see, the Lord knows that the human sin nature only respects authority that can give consequences. Students don't respect teachers, and children don't respect parents who cannot or will not give consequences. And so just like the police officer who writes tickets to a careless driver or an employer who terminates a divisive employee or a soldier who gets court-martialed, the Lord gives consequences to those who don't take him seriously so everybody else will. And if everybody did take him seriously, he wouldn't have to give consequences. So it's not his fault. He has to do it because we're sinners. Now, notice in verse 8, though, Jesus, playing the role of the, the gardener or vine dresser, says, sir, let it, let, let it alone this year. Until I dig around it, put, put on some manure. Notice, notice how Jesus intercedes for the tree and pleads for patience. He persuades the Father to extend mercy in the form of more time. Not because we deserve it, but because he's merciful. Now, in this tough, severe passage, I think there's some, some hope or some encouragement for us. Uh, and one bit of encouragement that I think is hidden in this verse is that the Lord longs for us to be more and to do more than we could be or do without him. So, so we, need to, we need to see God's heart in the passage. That's, that's one of the things I often do when I'm studying the scriptures or doing my devotions. I ask myself, what is this revealing about God's heart? And now certainly, at first impressions, we could look at this and go, man, he's a mean, tough God. However, I want to challenge you to look at the other side of the coin and realize, because he loves, because he's good, he wants more for us. He wants to help us become more and do more for him. He wants us to live lives that count for the kingdom because doing so gives our lives a greater purpose than living for ourselves and it brings more glory to him than us being selfish, bearing no fruit and just dying. So much so that he's willing to extend his deadline by granting another year, another month, another week, or perhaps another day. So let's make sure we see God's heart in the passage. Yeah, he has high expectations, but that's better than him having no expectations of us and letting us just go our own way in living lives that are self-centered and meaningless. Next, look at verse 9. Then the gardener, Jesus, speaking to the vineyard owner, God, then if it should bear fruit the next year, well and good. But if not, then you can cut it down. Here's point number three. The third truth that Jesus is trying to convey. The Lord executes judgment because he is just. He executes judgment because he is just. Whereas verse eight showed us that God can be patient, verse nine makes it clear that his patience is limited. And so we should not take like abuse it or take it for granted. or Cutting down is obviously a metaphor for divine judgment. Why judgment? Because if the Lord doesn't see fruit in the life of someone who claims to know him, to him it proves they really don't know him. Because all those who really know him bear fruit. That's, that's what the word teaches. Now, again, there's some encouragement here, I think, for us embedded in the text. As harsh and sobering as this verse sounds, verse 9, I think, means that those who have rejected Christ, when you tried to share him with them, 
those who mocked your faith when you tried to talk about him, and those who pretended to be a Christian when you knew they were not, such people will be dealt with by the Lord. He sees it. He's not fooled by anybody. The Lord executes judgment because he is just. I think Jesus told this parable so that we would take his call to repentance seriously and live fruitful lives for him. Now, how can we apply this parable to our lives? In John 13, 17, Jesus said, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. All in favor of blessings from God? Say aye. I'm for that. Sign me up, Lord. Now, I also share applications at the end of my messages because I'm hoping you will understand how God's word shall impact your life, but I also, I want you to learn to look for applications in your daily devotions throughout the week. I want you to be able to open God's word up tomorrow morning and, and to ask yourself as you read it and study it, okay, what is this calling me to do? What do I need to change in my thinking or my behavior? That is pleasing to the Lord. And as I just mentioned, John 13, 17, he says, he blesses that. So here's the first application that comes to mind. Fear the Lord. One of the trends I am noticing as a pastor in the last several years is that in the church's desire in America to make Jesus relatable, to make him accessible, to make him human and and at least show the human side of him, one of the uh, sort of backfiring or downsides to that is that I think the church in America has lost a fear of him. We no longer fear Jesus like we should. Now, the parable is a sober reminder to the unbeliever of the simple truth stated in Hebrews 10, verse 31. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is not good. There will be no celebrating in hell, no parties and having fun for eternity. The scriptures are clear. The sinner who dies without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ will be judged eternally and condemned for their sin. But it doesn't have to be that way. God offers forgiveness and peace with him and eternal life to anyone who will repent of their sin and by faith trust in Christ alone for their salvation. Now for the believer, this parable is a sober reminder of Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29. That we should offer God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. It means we should, as believers, take our worship seriously. Because the Jesus we worship, he's, he's not some pushover, puny nerd guy that you can beat up. He's going to come back again, according to the book of Revelation, riding on a white stallion with the flaming sword to bring judgment on the earth. Now, for the believer, fearing God doesn't mean being afraid of him, but it means rather having a healthy respect of his character and sharing his hatred for sin. That's what it means in the scriptures to fear God for those who know him. Uh, Next, number two, the second application that comes to mind is to depend on the spirit. You see, because some could read this parable and they could somehow process it either in the unregenerate mind, or if they are, say, maybe thinking in the flesh, they could process it as, I just need to work harder. I'm going to just try harder to be good. And be good, and be good, and be good, and be good. And they're only going to fail. It's amazing to me, and tragic, to see how many believers I run into that still try to pull off the Christian life in their own strength. They are like the story of a young man in 1979, true story, who made aviation history when he flew a pedal-powered 
plane across the English Channel. Taking off from England, he pedaled for three hours, rarely more than 15 feet above the water. Finally, after covering 22 miles, he landed on the coast of France totally exhausted. He'd accomplished his goal. But as dramatic as it was, man-powered flight will never be practical because the power required will always exceed the power man can produce. And the same is true in the Christian life. The Christian life will always, always require more spiritual power than any man or woman can produce on their own. We can't do it. But this kind of power is available to us, and it comes only from an abiding, daily, intimate, obedient relationship with the Lord. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6 reminds us of this. This is where the people of Israel were facing the overwhelming task of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem and trying to do it in their own strength. But the Lord reminded them, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And the same holds true for the Christian life. So, fear the Lord and depend on the Spirit. Well, most of us remember the story of Mount Vesuvius in either middle school or high school geography class. Vesuvius is a volcano located on the west coast of Italy, Italy excuse me, just south of Rome. It is best known for erupting in 79 A.D., in completely obliterating the city of Pompeii in about 25 hours and killing an estimated 30,000 people. Because the city was buried in volcanic ash and mud so quickly, the site has served as an unusually vivid snapshot of what life in a Roman city looked like in the first century. In the centuries that have followed, archaeologists have been able to excavate the site and have found human remains in cellars, as if they had gone there for security. Some were found in upper rooms of buildings. However, one of the most interesting findings from the Pompeii site were the remains of a Roman soldier found standing at the city gate where he had been placed by his captain with his hands still grasping his weapon, frozen in time, in volcanic ash and mud. It's fascinating to think that while the earth shook, the volcano rumbled, ash fell upon him, and lava crept towards his feet. He remained at his post. And centuries later, that faithful man is still standing there. Still there where he was assigned. You see, the opposite of a wasted life, like we heard at the beginning of this message, is not a successful one, but a faithful one. And if you have spiritual life growing inside you, then I want to urge you to be fruitful by living a faithful life for the Lord. That is, that is all he wants from you. He, he's, not, he's not asking you to be successful in the world's eyes. He wants you to just be faithful. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, um, passages like this, you know, are difficult to study because they, they reveal a side of Jesus that we're not used to hearing about. Please, Father, would you, would you help change 
our theology, how we view you, how we think of you, so it is in line with the scriptures. Would you please, Lord, insulate our minds from, from the lies of the adversary who, who will try to take this passage and twist it to mean something it doesn't mean. Heavenly Father, for those of us who do know you and know your Son, would you help us to live with a reverent awe of him? Would you, would you help us, Lord, to rightly apply the fear of you to our lives? I thank you, Lord, that, gosh, you're, you're so good that, and I can't remember which author said this, that when we fear you, we don't have to fear anything else. We don't have to fear people or anything else on this earth. Thank you, Lord, for that good truth that comes out of us fearing you. Lord, for those who don't know Christ, I pray, please, would you move sovereignly, providentially in their lives and show them that they don't have forever. That at any given moment, they could be standing before you, giving an account for their life. And if they don't have Jesus Christ, they will pay the penalty for their own sin. Please, Lord, help them to see that. It doesn't have to be that way. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for those who have given their lives so that we could have it in our hands. We thank you, Lord, for the freedom we enjoy in this country where we can gather and worship and study your word. Please, Lord, would you bless us and grant us your favor as we do our best to apply it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.